This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it's great to be with you. Happy Father's Day. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking into, as you see there in the text, um, a little bit about honor, a little bit about humility, and both are very appropriate for all of us. And we're, we're told in Scripture to honor our parents, honor your father and mother, and uh, in a lot of our relationships, we feel like honor is earned. Uh, and that's true to a large extent. It sure makes it easier to honor a father when he is honorable, uh, but that doesn't come with fine print that says only honor your Father, um, if you feel he's deserving of honor, um, it is a way that we step into humility and believe the gospel in order to honor and respect those who don't live honorable lives and don't respect others, uh, or they're, they're not respectable. Um, but anyway, we're going to be digging into this idea of honor and humility. If you haven't already done so, um, turn to Luke chapter 14. As you find yourself there in, in the scriptures, uh, I want to make you aware of something that's coming up, my upcoming sabbatical starting tomorrow. I'm going to be uh, teaching for uh, eight days down in the state of Alabama. Ever heard of it? They have a football team. Um, but uh, I'm going to be teaching to a group of fourth graders all the way through college students. And I've been teaching these students for eight years. Uh, so a lot of these college students were fifth graders when I started teaching them, and so it's going to be great to spend some time down there with them. And then following that week, I'll be starting my four-week sabbatical. I'm calling it a stay-batical. I'm going to be staying around, uh, but uh, pushing back from some certain pastoral tasks um, as a way of just refreshing and uh, spending some time with my family, learning what it's like to be a normal Christian uh, at the Axis, a normal ministry partner uh, here gathering, uh, being a part of Axis community and things. And so thank you for that gift. But during this time, uh, not only be praying for us, be praying for the six different men that have been trained through our pastoral leadership collective here at the Axis, our PLC, who will be uh, each taking a week to preach. There'll be six-week series that we're going through certain psalms called Songs of Hope. It's going to be a summer series that we have and uh, be praying for these men, their wives, and their, their children uh, as they're going to be preparing uh, the sermons for uh, these six weeks Looking forward to being served by them. I know they're going to be a, a, a source of deep refreshment for us throughout the summer. Um, okay, so let's get to work here in the text. Uh, if you're new with us, uh, we are 68 weeks into our study through Luke. We're going verse by verse, often word by word. Uh, we're not in a hurry, as you can tell. Um, but uh, we uh, are now almost 70 weeks into this time, and we notice that Jesus is he's out and about. Uh, he's teaching as he's making his way toward Jerusalem, and uh, he's teaching, he's curing, he's healing people. Um, he, he's having people follow him for many different reasons. The crowds are growing, people are being changed, uh, people are being saved. But the religious, the Sadducees, the religious lawyers, the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of uh, the Jewish people, um, these Pharisees, they don't, they don't like uh, what Jesus is doing. He doesn't fit their understanding of what the Messiah should be. And Jesus still spends significant time in their homes, in their synagogues, as he teaches them. I mean, so much of the New Testament Gospels has Jesus dealing with Pharisees 
religious cats who don't trust him, uh, don't understand him, they question him, they don't like him. People who are going to end up killing him. Even our time this morning is in the home of a ruler of the Pharisee and Jesus is eating with them. So knowing, knowing all this, he still spends time with them. And this is a point of great emphasis that we looked at last week in our sermon. But now knowing this about Jesus, it should encourage every single one of us as we often misunderstand Jesus, question Jesus at times, push back from Jesus at times in our life and our journey. But friends, these feelings, these moments that we have in our lives that are like this, these points of uh, struggling with our faith, they're not disqualifications of Christianity. They're not disqualifications of our faith. But as we lean in, and as we'll see this morning with humility, we'll see that these moments in our life, these gut checks in our faith, are actually gifts to help build our faith in Christ. So today's text has Jesus once again teaching Pharisees. Something to remember about these Pharisees is that they're sick with life. They're, they're very miserable. Uh, they're constantly frustrated and they're very bitter, mainly because they're living with one foot in the world of their pride and their selfishness while also living with a foot in the spiritual world. And so as Charles Spurgeon, uh, he, he said it this way, be half a Christian and you shall have enough religion to make you miserable. Be holy, all in, be holy a Christian and your joy shall be full. Well, Jesus speaks three different parables here in this home of this Pharisee, this rule of the Pharisees. And all three of these, that we're, we're looking at the first one, these parables, are pushing this audience to humility, the religious leaders to humility. So that's some context. Let's jump into the text. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 7. Now, Jesus uh, told a parable to those who were invited. Right? Context, they're in the home of the Pharisee, right? The ruler of the Pharisee. So he's telling a parable to those who were invited to be guests in the home of the ruler of the Pharisees when he noticed how they chose and selected the best seats, the places of honor. And so this is the parable that he said to them, noticing this about them. He says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding, to a wedding feast, to a reception, don't sit down in a place of honor. Don't choose the best seats. Lest someone more uh, distinguished, more respected, more honored than you be invited by the host. And he who invited you, the one in charge of this party, will come to you and say, give your place up to this person and then you will begin with shame. Then you will begin disgraced. The word really means humiliated. You'll be humiliated and then have to go take the lowest place or the least important spot. So as we take a deeper look into this text this morning, one thing we have to realize is that honor is at play here. And honor for uh, the first century Middle East, and honestly, even in today's Middle East, honor uh, is, is at the central heart of their culture and society. Nothing is more desired than that, and nothing is more hated than being dishonored. And the English that we have here, the way that it's read, isn't as, as robust as is in the Greek. And so what it really comes to us, it says, then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. 
Or then you will go with shame to the least important seat. For us, if we're at a party like this, at a reception like this, this means us um, having to move to a bad seat. It's not really that embarrassing. If you like food like I do, you're just thinking, well, now our table's going to be the last one that's going to get served, right? That's the bad thing for us. But for those in the audience hearing Jesus teach, he's speaking of their worst nightmare. At least one of their worst nightmares, being publicly humiliated, publicly dishonored. And now we've seen many times in our study through Luke that when Jesus taught, the Pharisees were speechless. They could not give an answer. They were astonished and could not respond. Have we not seen that? We've seen this a lot, right? And so at the heart of this, this is getting at their pride. At the heart of this, this is dishonoring them, and, and they feel humiliated. They feel disgraced at what Jesus is teaching and how he's teaching it because it's revealing their need and their ignorance, and they don't like it. And ultimately, this is what gets Jesus crucified um, in, in the eyes of man is, is they were finished with him dishonoring them. Because, I mean, they could kill Jesus in a back alley somewhere in the dark, but then he becomes a martyr. But to convict Jesus publicly of blasphemy, to have him executed publicly in, the, in, in crucifixion, this removes their dishonor and it places them as legally in the right and now more honorable than Jesus. And so Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that this, these Pharisees and these religious rulers, that they have this, this deep desire, this, this proud ambition, this competitive spirit to have the best seat to be recognized as the best, to, to do anything you can to end up at the top of the religious food chain. It's like second graders fighting to be the line leader instead of the door holder. It's the same thing. And a significant problem that we face in this same struggle that is our struggle too. We're the second graders that don't want to hold the door, right? In our struggle with this, any time we pursue and become driven by this worthless, so fleeting glory from man, recognition from others, being honored by others, we're always and constantly filled with envy and jealousy. It's like we never get enough honor. We're always consumed. We're driven for a desire for what's mine, for what I feel like I deserve. And when I don't get what I know I deserve, there's something that just infuriates me. It frustrates me. And it makes me bitter towards those who are getting what I feel like is mine. But throughout the New Testament and in the following verses, we learn that there's a better way, that this isn't the way that we're to think. This is not how we are to behave. And the gospel has everything to do with it. The gospel speaks into this at its core. And in fact, Paul later on, so this was written in the life and times of Christ, Paul, uh, one of the first church planners, uh, the, Paul the Apostle, he writes in Romans 12 to the church at Rome, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, if there is going to be this competitive nature within the church, don't let it be over the idea of envy and jealousy and getting what's yours. If there's going to be competition in the church, let it be in trying to outdo one another in showing honor more than those who are showing honor. Like that's, That competition reflects the gospel. That competition is reflected in how Jesus Christ handled himself for us, us who are rebels and haters. So as Jesus teaches this, knowing that honor is at play, all those in the room would, would be very attentive. And he, he, he goes further. Look in verse 10. He says, but when you are invited, go and sit in the 
farthest away seat, the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, and this is a gospel, this is a gospel phrase. I love this phrase. He may say to you, friend, move up higher. Friend, move to a better seat. And then you will be doxa. You will be glory in the presence. You'll be honored in the presence. You'll have the status and the respect. Then you will experience this honor from all who are eating with you, who are sitting at table with you. And then here's the point that Jesus is getting towards, and here's how this is the phrase he's going to play off of with the next two parables, as we'll see uh, in, in a few weeks when we pick, back, uh, pick up Luke again. For everyone who lifts up himself, for everyone who exalts himself, everyone who seeks a higher position than others will be humbled, will be made humble. It's, it's, it speaks of a force outside of one, outside of their choice, outside of their doing. It's being done to them. In other words, they'll be humiliated. But he who humbles himself, this is a choice within the person. For, for the one who chooses humility, one who humbles himself, he will be exalted. And the Christ point is he'll be exalted by God. Now, have you ever been in a, in a situation, in a conversation where someone's going on and on, just talking, talking, talking about something that you care about? It might be food, politics, philosophy of, uh, of physical training uh, and health, whatever it might be, okay? And they're wrong, but they're so confident. And they're, they're convincing your friends, they're convincing those at the table with you or, you know, standing around, whatever. And you can tell they're very convincing, but they're very wrong. And you're torn in what to do. Like, you, you want to speak up and correct them, you, you don't really... Like, how do I handle this? Like, well, these Pharisees were all feeling this way about something that they knew a lot about. They knew, they knew a lot about this. They loved this. They cared so much at such a supreme level. They cared about what Jesus is speaking about. But Jesus is teaching the complete opposite of their philosophy of religion, their philosophy of life. He's teaching the, the, the direct opposite of their theology. And so this room would be filled with such tension. You could hear a pin drop because everyone knows that Jesus is speaking directly against what it is that they supremely value. And now Jesus, aware of this tension, filling it in the room, he doesn't back away and have this conversation later. I love the poise, the boldness. He just embraces this tension and he boldly teaches these Pharisees. And in the process, he's offering them like, really good practical advice. Like he's being a friend of these guys, uh, he's, but he's also giving them an, a gospel opportunity. And I love the wisdom and advice that he's giving these Pharisees and us. He, he's helping them. This is very practical. He's helping them socially. Ultimately, he's, he's helping them not get embarrassed publicly. But in the moment, this is embarrassing and hard to hear. But this wisdom is right in line with what they would know. They would know, they would go back to King Solomon and what he wrote about this very thing in Proverbs 25, where it says, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it's better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. So they can't argue with him. So this is Jesus helping us practically be reminded be reminded here, he's helping us practically, but be reminded this is a parable, right? With all parables, there's a life lesson, there's wisdom, but there's also a spiritual aspect to the, to the lesson that's to be learned. 
This is the purpose of parables. They're short stories that give you practical wisdom, but also spiritual direction and insight. Now, perhaps all Jews, but definitely these particular Jews in the room with Jesus here, when they heard wedding feast, wedding, reception, wedding banquet, like we might think of the last wedding we went to. We might think of our wedding that we're in, the wedding that we want to be in, the wedding that's planned but not with these guys. These guys would automatically think kingdom of God. When they heard wedding banquet, they would think what we know to be true that we read later in Revelation. They would think perfect peace. They would think King Christ, Messiah, ruling and reigning, heavenly bliss. That's where their mind went to. Okay? So they're, they're not thinking of simply a wedding. They know that Jesus in this parable is he's speaking towards the idea of heaven. Now, today we, we all attend weddings and there's seats that are reserved in, in certain uh, settings. Like, you know, typically uh, the third row um, is for guests who are out of town that are like family, perhaps that were uh, like almost adopted uh, aunts and uncles. Uh, they, they typically fill the third and fourth row. Uh, typically the second row is for uh, family, uh, close family, and then there's even reserved seats in those. I remember doing the wedding of uh, John and Alyssa McCoy, uh, who now lived out in Birmingham, uh, and uh, he carried the hat of his grandfather who had recently passed away, and he sat it beside his mother on his way um, up front with me, and that was a reserved seat. It was very special. It was, it was a seat of honor, recognizing the loss of his, his papa. And then there's often uh, the very front row um, in a lot of situations, a lot of settings that remain just open, right? Kind of like that little guard that makes you feel like you're not so vulnerable and just you can drift out to the wedding party, kind of gives you something to hold on to. Second rowers, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but then everybody else kind of sits behind and, and fills in the room. You know, some, if you're a friend of the groom, you sit on the groom's side. Some on the bride. If you're friends of the bride, you sit on the bride's side. And then at the reception, it's, it's very similar. Typically, the bride and the groom, they have their table, uh, and it's uh, the, the center of attention in the room. It's the focus of the room. And then the, the bridal party will have their tables around that. And then the mothers and fathers, the si siblings have their tables. And then sometimes it's a free-for-all, Right? Um, you just try to guess which table is going to get to go first for the food. If you're, again, anything like me. It's the only thing I think about at weddings is the food. Um, it's not true. Um, or sometimes there's table markings, right? You, you have a table number and you go and so forth. Well, our society, our culture uh, thinks through this in the same way that first century Jerusalem would think about it. And so this parable that Jesus is giving us is common practice for us and um, ancient Israel, where there's certain guests, there's certain seats, and there's certain tables. And the more important, the more personally significant the guest is, uh, they would typically ar arrive last and have a reserved seat. It's like at a wedding before the ceremony actually begins with the spoken word, before the bride comes in, the last person comes to an empty seat, and it's the mother of the bride. And that seat is reserved for her. In the wedding party, at the reception, the best seats are left empty until the bridal party comes and everybody at the reception who's already there, they all clap. You know that those seats aren't for you. They're not just empty. They're for prized and valued guests that are going to be 
sitting in those. And so what Jesus is saying is that if you get to the banquet early and you see that wonderful table and it's beautifully decorated, be careful at assuming that it's for you. He said it's better to go and sit at a more modest seat that's less decorated, further away, not as prominent, perhaps smaller, perhaps in the dark, further from the food. Go there then to assume that the best seat and table is for you because then you'll be embarrassed. But if those at the wedding are like, no, come up here, come on, sit with my parents, sit up closer, you know, then you feel like it's, it's better to move up and closer than back and further away. Now here's where we're going to transition with our time this morning. Is Jesus isn't encouraging us to have a hypocritical attitude and, and thought process that would deliberately find the seat furthest away with the hope of or in order to be able to be publicly exalted and recognized and moved up later. See, there's a difference in, in why you choose that seat. That's, that's doing something that looks genuine and looks right, but it's really only promoting yourself. So you're not sitting there because you're humble. You're sitting there because you're extremely proud and you're hoping to be invited up. So if I do this, then I get to sit up there. So let's sit over here so that we can be invited up over there. You see, what Jesus is calling for here is not for us to merely practice the wisdom of what he's talking about, but to see and understand and respond to the spiritual lesson that's found here. He's calling for us not to act humble, not to just sit further away, not just go do humble things. He's calling us here to be humble. It's not about the doing of humble task is becoming humble. And there's a significant difference. The Pharisees that he's talking to, they looked right on the outside. They looked religious. They looked alive to God. But the Pharisees' hearts are stone cold dead. And the lesson is this, that God draws near to the humble and he is pushed away from the proud. And if you want to be raised up, you've got to humble yourself because only what is brought low can be raised up. But what does this look like? How do we do this? What's the proper motive in pursuing humility? I mean, getting the, the social aspects and principles locked down on humility is one thing, but Jesus cared more about this than simply helping us out at our social events. Deeper than our humility before others, Jesus is pressing us to be concerned with our humility before God. And all throughout Scripture, from Genesis all the way to the maps in the very back, God is showing us compassion, and he shows compassion to those who are meek, those who are broken, those who are humble, and those who are low. And all throughout Scripture, he rejects the proud, he rejects the arrogant. And those who are proud, those who are righteous, they don't, see their, they don't sense their need for God's grace. Those who are proud, those who are righteous, those who have it all together, it, it, their focus is on other people's issues. They always overinflate someone else's issue because it helps accommodate theirs because they're not as bad off as that person. So they see that this guy, this gal, needs grace and forgiveness, but they're overlooking themselves in need of constant grace and forgiveness. And the hope of the gospel is that God does lift up and exalt the lowly, the needy, and the poor sinner because he crushed and humiliated his son in the place of the rebel, in the place of the lowly, needy, and sinner. 
And it's only those who know that they're needy sinners that are going to call out for grace and cry out for help. Well, this week I came across a website that uh, listed the top ways to be humble. Uh, here's, a, here's a few of these things. Uh, appreciate the talents and qualities of others. Stop comparing yourself to others. Don't be afraid of deferring to others' judgment. Seek guidance from written texts. Remain teachable. Help others. Compliment others. Go last. Ask for feedback. Confront your prejudices. Start with a question. Really listen. Accept setbacks. And discover all. And this is all true. I, I believe this would all be good for us to pursue these things. We could do these things. We, we could try these things. We could do these things faithfully. And here's the tricky thing. We could do all these things, and still at the end of the day, we would not be humble. You could do all this and not be humble. You see, humility is not something that you go and get. It's not something that you find, you've got it, and you can add it to your personality. Humility is the essence of a person. It's the aroma of their soul being sensed and discerned and experienced by others. Humility is who someone is. It's not something that someone does. Something that someone does could easily be legalism or moralism. Who someone is speaks to more of a gospel identity issue. You know, it's similar to God and His holiness. Holiness doesn't describe something that God does. Holiness describes who God is. So in this sense, think of it this way. Holiness is to God as humility is to the Christian. Now, I don't believe that humble people think about humility. I don't think humble people think of themselves. In fact, I like what C.S. Lewis said. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. The freedom, I think Tim Keller says it this way, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. C.S. Lewis also said that the first step to being humble is to realize that you're proud. And if you don't think that you're proud, it means you're the most proud. So this should cause all of us, all of us students, it should, it should cause us to ask and discern, am I humble? Or do I just look for ways to come across as humble? Am I humble or do I just do humble things to not come across as being a jerk and proud? Am I humble? And there's a subtle difference, but there is a difference. And the difference isn't merely with actions, and responses. The difference comes down to a matter of our heart. It's something that we can often sense, but we can rarely see. You know, humility never walks into a room and feels that it deserves to be there. And it doesn't focus on the reasons why so-and-so doesn't belong there. Humility doesn't strut. Humility doesn't have a swagger to itself. It doesn't think of itself. Its focus is on other people. In fact, humility probably walks with a limp and it knows it. You see, true humility for the Christian, it comes from a change of heart. True humility comes from an individual having their heart change 
And this change being brought about by God revealing to a person that he is holy and that they're a sinner and that Jesus Christ came to save sinners just like them. You know, it's like in Isaiah 6. God is, is manifesting himself to this prophet Isaiah. Isaiah sees the majestic Lord God Almighty in all his splendor, in all his majesty. And without God saying, Isaiah, you're, you're a sinner. The Lord doesn't say anything like that. God is high and lifted up. And Isaiah sees God. And Isaiah says, without it ever being fed to him, this line, he looks up at God. He says, woe is me. I am unclean. My lips are unclean. I live in a land of unclean people. Woe is me. I am a sinner. God never told him that. But in light of his holiness, in light of his otherness, in light of his glory, Isaiah, he feels his sin. So true humility in the life of a Christian comes when we see that God is holy, when we see that he's so different than we are. We see ourselves in light of who he is and that he loves us and brings us, changing us, brings us back into relationship with him. That's where humility comes from. And those who are humble, they're aware that they're needy and, and, and that they're not enough, that much is lacking and they see this in themselves much more than they see it in other people. They, they see that God is sufficient and he's able to meet all our needs according to the work of Christ Jesus, his son, and according to his riches that are found in Christ Jesus. And it's through Christ that they see that only in and through Christ are they enough. Yet, we all know it's all too familiar. We have these questions that plague us. Our, our proud self-absorption often thinks, am I getting the career that I deserve? A am I being noticed the way I want to be noticed? Is life the way that it should be for me? Don't I deserve better than this? Am I being adequately appreciated and cared for like I want to be? Do people know just how wonderful and exceptional I really am? And why am I not getting what I feel like I deserve? Friend, we all ask these questions. How we answer them makes all the difference. We must know that this sort of demandingness and self-focus is not falling short of the gospel. It's the opposite of the gospel. It's the opposite. It's not missing it by a little bit. It's going in the complete opposite direction. You see, believing the gospel and allowing it to permeate all areas of our psyche, our mind, our heart, our soul, our lives, this is how humility begins to flourish in our lives. Humility then becomes less focused on what we do and becomes more and more focused on who we are. And this transformation, it happens as we're early and often reminded of our sinfulness and the need for forgiveness and grace. We're constantly, early and often, being reminded of Jesus and how he was made sin for us as us. And we're constantly being reminded, early and often, of God's forgiveness at the expense of Jesus Christ. And over time, as we mature in this, as we truly absorb and believe this more and more, we see that others are just like us. They're in need of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And that their sin is no different than mine. It's in need of forgiveness, grace, and mercy. And when we, we see Jesus then as the one who comes to us, 
choosing the lowest seat in order to give us the higher seat, the seat of honor. This is given to us very clearly, and I believe it's best understood in Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, is there? Yes. If there's any comfort in love, is there? Yes. If there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any fact at all that the Holy Spirit helps us, yes, there is. If there's any affection and sympathy, yes, then complete my joy. He's writing this to the church, so receive this personally, but also receive it as the church, Axis family. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. You can't do that in church, but you can do that and show honor. And he says, do nothing from selfish ambition, do nothing from conceit, and then he gets here at the heart of the issue, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And now here's how this plays out. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, those are important, but also look out to the interests of others. Essentially, what I'm writing to you, church, is this. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours only in and through Christ Jesus. It's not yours naturally. This is only, this mind is only given to you through Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, and friends, I don't think we'll ever understand in full what we're about to read. We can never appreciate what we're about to read that Jesus did, what happened to Jesus Christ. And every one of us should be humbled and broken and shocked And have our spirits disturbed at what Christ did for us and what we're about to hear. That though he was in the form of God, perfect and holy, high and lifted up, he did not count that position. He did not count equality with God, equality with God, a thing to be held on to and never relinquished. But instead... Jesus Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by taking the lowest seat, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even further, death on a criminal's cross. Jesus models here in the gospel that Paul gives to us exactly what Jesus tells us. That if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. That's exactly what happened. Jesus takes this lowest seat, but then God has highly exalted him to the highest seat. And he's bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not to the glory of your good work, but to the glory of God the Father. So friend, here it is. Jesus left his seat of honor, his heavenly throne, and he took on flesh. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ entered into our time and space in order to become sin on our behalf. Not to be welcomed, he came to be rejected. Not to be loved, he came to be hated. And it's through the reversal of the curse that he endured for us that the haters 
become lovers, and those who are orphans become adopted sons and daughters. You see, humility is found in seeing the Creator die for the creation. You know, every other religion seems to be based on one's performance. Every other religion says, you've got to jump this high. You've got to be this good. You've got to climb up here. You've got to work harder. You've got to give more. Counterfeit hope after counterfeit hope, lie after lie. Every other religion is, is, is someone's attempt to get to God. Yet Christianity is so unique because it says, stop. Christianity says, surrender it. Christianity says, give up. It says, quit just believe. And, and that's true because instead of us trying to get to God, what happens is the gospel says that God has come to us, that he has come, the word has been made flesh, like John 1 writes about, that he's come to you. And so stop striving to be, striving to be good enough. Stop striving to, to climb and climb higher and faster. See that he has come to us. And it's when we embrace and believe this gospel that we find forgiveness in and through Jesus Christ. We find peace, mercy, grace, contentment in and through what Jesus Christ has done for us. And when we, when we walk in the fullness of this salvation that is ours by faith alone, our lives are changed, our marriages are changed, uh, how we handle our children changes, how we look at our jobs changes. How we handle our resources, how we handle our finances, how we handle ourselves. Everything changes. All these things change as a result of us humbling before God and trusting Him. I love what 1 Peter says in, in correlation with this. 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And it's specific to honor here because it's humility toward one another. And he reminds us of what Jesus is teaching us. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, the response should be, humble yourselves then. If he gives grace to the humble, it is only the fool that doesn't humble himself. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time. That doesn't mean it's in your timing. It's not, that doesn't mean it's when you best understand it to be, Right? But at the proper time, he may exalt you. And here's what this looks like practically. Casting all your anxieties on him. Rather than toiling with it and trying to fix it in your own power, give it to him. Because he cares for you. He cares for you more than you care for you. Yet, here's what pride does. Pride keeps these anxieties. That's why I think he attaches it to humility here. Is pride doesn't give our anxieties to God. Pride says, no, we're going to fix this. this. This is better off in my control. I know best. Let me fix this. That's pride. Don't keep it in your possession. That's not what humility would do. You see, my brothers and sisters, the door to heaven, the door to your hope, the, the door to your happiness, the door to your contentment and your peace, the door to humility and true honor, it's a very low door. You don't sprint, run, skip, climb, jump, compete to get into that door. 
You can't strut or have swagger or pride to get into that door. You crawl. You crawl because it's a low door. But because it's a low door, even children can get into the kingdom. Because it's a low door, even the poor can get in the door. But because it's a low door, even those who are lame can crawl through that door. The poor, the weak, even the dirty sinners can climb through that door. They find it. They see it. They're low enough to understand it. But in our pride, we often overlook it. We don't notice it. We can't notice it. Our pride, our ego, our self-righteousness, our self-exaltation, we'll never crawl through a low door. Our eyes are fixed too high. Our, our eyes are lifted too high. We're overlooking ourselves. We're overlooking our need. We see the need of others, but we're overlooking our need, and we're overlooking the only way to God. And so I invite you this morning to humble yourself and to call out to God through Jesus Christ. Christian, I'm calling you to humble yourself and call out to God through Jesus Christ and give Him what it is that you're just so toying over. Those who aren't Christians yet, I invite you to humble yourself and call out to God through Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and so that you can experience at the proper time being exalted by God throughout all eternity. We, we all have the same opportunity that these, these gentlemen did in this room with Jesus on this day. We can humble ourselves and we can receive forgiveness of our sins. We can receive true life. Humble yourself before God and receive forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. Complete reconciliation with God. That's it. Don't and you'll be eternally humiliated in sin because of your sin and your pride. This is the call of the gospel. The gospel says the humble are in and the proud are out. So humble yourselves and believe, and the Lord will exalt you. He will save you. Well, friend, now we're going to share in communion. And in this communion, I want us to go back to Ephesians 2. Because we're going to be focusing on Jesus. So what we're thinking on, what we're processing here, what we're believing as we come and take the bread and dip it into the juice or the wine, what we're telling ourselves, we're remembering ourselves of Jesus, that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. That's what we're remembering right now. This isn't just a religious ritual that we do at the end of our sermons. This isn't Sunday morning routine. This is in response to remembering, reflecting, and hearing the news that Jesus emptied himself that Jesus took on the form of a servant. You're reminding yourself that Jesus was born in the likeness of men and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. You're reminding yourself that he died on a cross. This is what we're remembering as we share in this very holy and sacred meal together. And it's as we remember this and as we even move beyond this place later today, it's as we remember this now and remember this very often that humility will become part of who we are. So during this time, see Jesus and what he's done for you. See yourself and your situation and your sin and confess it to him. He is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin, to wash you 
clean from your sin. And so don't do this carelessly, flippantly. Do this carefully. Don't be in a hurry. Think through this time. Pray through this time. Ponder through this time before you come and take. And then Christian, as you come, this is a meal for Christians. And so Christian, when you come and you get that piece of bread, I want you to be reminded of what Christ did for you in his life and his death and his resurrection. You're going to dip it in the the juice or the wine, and this is a direct symbol of his death on the cross where he shed his blood in order for you to experience forgiveness. And that forgiveness is so necessary because it's that that reconciles you back to God in relationship, and it's that that makes everything else perfect for eternity. That reconciliation with God is what we're all after. It's what we're looking for. So I want you to think through these things. After you've thought, after you've prepared your hearts, I invite you to come. Let's pray and ask God's help and His blessing over this time. Father, thank You for this time, Lord, that we have had listening. I pray learning, understanding more of the love that You have for us, of the work that Christ has accomplished for us, and for what Your Holy Spirit is is active and alive and doing in our hearts making us alive, making us humble. Lord, protect us from just doing humble things and thinking that's enough. Lord, make us humble through your gospel's work and your spirit's work in our heart. Lord, make us a humble people. Lord, help us outdo one another in showing honor. Help us understand this to our core. Help it permeate every aspect of our lives. Help us. Protect us from compartmentalizing our lives into like secular or sacred and help us see it all as sacred. All as intentional. All as to be infused with the gospel of Christ. Laced with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. Help us believe. Lord, add your special blessing to this time of remembering you as we confess our sin, as we focus on you and your finished work, as we believe you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.